0: Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks. Read by the author. Hey, this is Dan Parks, author of Mercy Not Sacrifice. Let me say thank you for listening to my audiobook version of the project. I really appreciate it. It was fun to do and it's, it's also fun to record. If you're enjoying this, please do me a favor and leave a review and rate the podcast as that really helps me on iTunes. Helps it get noticed and helps other people enjoy the project as well. Thanks. Stay tuned for another chapter. Chapter 13. The Loneliest Road I was proud of that 1972 Marlette trailer home when I bought it. We landscaped the outside, and Lori put a flower box in the window by the front door. But it was supposed to be a temporary place, just for the years before she graduated college. Time had elapsed to the afternoon, and I had grown hungry, and I put a frozen dinner in the microwave. The kitchen inside my trailer was a mess. Dishes were piled high on the right section of the double sink and the stove top was caked with cooking spatter. A pan of grease sat still on the stove. The table in the corner had begun to fall apart some time ago. It leaned on three legs and rested against the wall. I had told Lori I'd fix it before. Out the living room, through the blinds, a cold and soft rain had begun to fall. I took to my chair and sat down and finished the mashed potatoes and my plastic dinner. The meal had warmed me for a bit But then a chill came into the air, and I grew cold. Walking back to the bedroom when I grabbed the throw blanket off the unmade bed, I began to feel that old familiar sorrow. I saw the razor blades on the end table next to my bed and tried to turn away. But when I saw her cardigan hung on the closet door, I had a choice to make. God damn I'm lonely, I said. I held her cardigan in my hands. It still smelled like her. I remembered our first time that we had come together. Lori sat in the middle seat of my truck. And when we were just about to her house, she stopped me and asked, Can we go a little further? And we did. She let me make the first move, and I was scared to death. I was on top of her, and then she was on top of me. The look in her eyes is what I remember. It was trust that I saw. As if she would have followed me anywhere I would take us. All I had left of that memory was the olive-colored cardigan, and I held it tight against my chest like I once held her. She was gone, but my loneliness remained. I took her memory to the bathroom, and I sat on the toilet and pulled down my pants. I first began to cut myself when the emotions that built up inside me had to be let out, somehow. It became the immediate relief that I was looking for. But afterwards, I was still left with myself. My dad tried to help me with his religion. His church prayed and laid hands on me. It didn't help, but only reinforced the fact that something was wrong with me. On the weekends with my mom, she'd let me get drunk with her, but that acceptance only lasted until the hangover wore off the next morning. I looked down into the water and between my legs. It sat still, but my thoughts did not. I took hold of my shriveled penis and tried to arouse myself. Lori was so young and innocent. Her skin was soft against mine. When I first penetrated her, her face had been filled with a fearful joy. But when I turned around to the mirror above the sink, my face reflected a depressed misery. I became erect after the first few strokes of my hand, but soon became disillusioned. Dr. Healer had helped me work with my mind. He had said that I allowed my inner critic to become too strong, and had suggested that when my negative thoughts come, I should resist them. I should fight back. I asked myself why I hadn't moved on after her death, and I squeezed myself harder. I closed my eyelids and tried to focus on our good times. Once on a weekend away, Lori had surprised me. On a trip for my birthday, we had driven over to a baseball game in St. Louis. I had never cared much for the sport, but red had been my favorite color ever since Grandpa John had given me a Cardinals hat for my seventh birthday, I had been resting on the hotel bed after our dinner out, and had just turned on the television when she came out of the bathroom. Lori walked towards me, delicately and determined, as her skin glowed against a matching red bra and underwear. It was as if I had something that she wanted. Never had we made love like that before. In my left hand, I held her cardigan, gripping it tight, but in my right hand, I held the shaft of my penis harder. I tried to be happy, but I began to cry instead. When my eyes came to, I saw the door open, and Lori came in and sat up against the sink. Oh, Johnny, she said. I studied her face, the tight cheekbones above thin lips. Her hair still, a smooth and straight blonde, but something was different. Why haven't you? she asked. I took my right hand off myself to see that I had drawn blood with my grip. My strokes had caused the pain of my past to become new scars of the present. Not now, Lori. If not now... Then, she responded. I got up and ran to the bedroom with my pants around my ankles. Just before the bed, I tripped and fell on my face and laid on the floor. Seconds became minutes, and that's when who I had become had become too much to carry. I rolled over and looked down to see that my erection had left me, but the feeling of burden had not. A sacrifice had to be made. I pulled my pants up, and they called to me like they always had. They promised a lie, but then it was the only truth that I knew. I picked out the small, plastic box of razor blades with the black and red and white sticker on top. It was a 50-pack of single-edge blades. I took a single one out and held it in between my index finger and my thumb and rested the blade against the skin of my left wrist. Dr. Healer told me to reach out to him if I ever got into this position again, but a phone call was too much work when relief was between my fingers. It was as if my hand was on autopilot as the angle of the blade rose and the indifferent metal of the blade began to tear my skin. Blood ran down my forearm from my wrist as my veins wanted mercy that my heart was unable to give. I had none left, especially not for myself. Fuck! I yelled as I threw the blade up against the closet door and a bubble of blood stuck to the glass mirror. I watched the blood fall down the door until I saw the reflection of my face and turned away. I stood to my feet and grabbed the razor blade. I squeezed it in between my thumb and index finger. It cut my fingertips like a knife slices through an onion and a thousand images ran through my mind. The time when I was a young boy at the creek and killed my first snake. The time of my early teens when I raced my bike down town hill and flipped head first over the handlebars. I saw my dad leaving the driveway of my childhood home for the last time, and the picture of Lori in his car after the accident. I had had enough. I had to deal with it right then and there, or I had to get away from it all. I set the razor blade down on the nightstand and took a bag from the closet and stuffed it in two days worth of clothes and started to walk out, but stopped myself, turning back to get her sweater. The office at Carmen Carrier's was empty when I walked in. I turned on the light and looked through the outbound folder on Archie's desk. I thumbed through it until I found the San Francisco loads and pulled the paperwork for the load of paper rings going to Bay Area Paper. Up to that point, I'd never been across the bridge, but I could already see the view from the top of it. I felt the wind against my face walking along the side that faces the jail. I could see the water ripple below and heard a ringing that started softly but grew louder with each tone. The last ring burned my ears and my body felt his pain. Grandpa John bought his first Freightliner straight from the assembly plant in Indianapolis, and we had run them ever since. They had always been white and red, and my truck sat out in the yard on the line. I climbed up in the cab and threw my bag in the passenger seat. I pressed the clutch to the floor and turned the key to the on position, pushing the button to start. The turbos sung, and the exhaust bellowed out of the pipes as I pushed the throttle, giving it a little extra push to remind myself of where I was. I drove down to the fence where the loaded trailers were kept. I matched the paperwork number to the corresponding trailer number and lined my truck up with it. I shifted into reverse and backed underneath the trailer, and the trailer was lifted as the fifth wheel pushed back towards the kingpin. The lock handle clicked when the connection was made. I pulled the truck forward with a tug to ensure the coupling was secure. Hooking a truck to a trailer was a sequential process, one that I had become accustomed to as the order never changed. If only my life was as orderly. Getting out of the truck, I walked along the driver's side of the trailer and looked underneath to, to make sure there wasn't any gap between the fifth wheel and the trailer. At the back axles of the trailer, I kicked the tires. Around the back and over to the passenger side, I raised the landing gear. I walked by the fuel tank on the truck and reached up behind the exhaust pipe and took hold of the truck's airlines. I coupled the red emergency glad hand to the trailer's matching connection and then connected the blue service line and the green electrical cord. I took out on E-Route over to Highway 87 and merged onto Highway 240 crossing over the Missouri River on the Gardenstown Bridge. But the bridge of my youth was no longer there. The old bridge was a tribute of pride to our town. It had welcomed all who crossed into Gardenstown and said, You are home. What had been known as the first all-steel bridge in the world was replaced by a new, unimaginative, and tedious structure. Driving through Slater, I continued on to Highway 65, passing by Marshall and into Sedalia when I turned on to Highway 50 West. It is a special road. There are faster ways to get to the West Coast, but I had chose the road less traveled by for one reason. I needed the time. Time to think. Time to be to decide whether or not I was making the right choice. Highway 50 is a transcontinental highway that stretches from Maryland in the east to Sacramento in the west. The Pony Express used a route as far back as the 1860s. Large, desolate areas paint the canvas of the highway along with sparse signs of civilization which give it the nickname of the loneliest road in America. Truck driving is both a gift and a curse to a man. It gives him time alone with his thoughts and often it's too much of it. It is true that there can be too much of a good thing. Candy softens the teeth. Liquor rots the liver. Tobacco takes the breath out of the lungs. Time, mixed with overthinking and miles of open road, make the mind do impossibly evil things. With the wind at my back, I pushed forward. I was alone and had been since Lori's death and it ached me. I felt as a glove without a hand to wear it and I searched for my purpose. The road gave me time to think it all over, but I got stuck on one single thought. What was she doing with him? The accident report filed by the police determined that their destination was unknown. My mind flipped on with rage. Makina Ardenes. I hated his name as it sounded like mayonnaise. I loathed this beaming white smile. All those years that I was on the road and she was at home living her daily life. When I had come home and it began to be an interruption to the life that she was building, it was as if during my time off, we both bid our time until I'd go out on the road again. I never had told her but I began to not like to be there. I was only a visitor, and at some point all visits have to end. Night fell as I drove through Independence over into Kansas. I flipped the headlights on and rolled my window down. I needed peace, but it was nowhere to be found. I drove faster, but my thoughts were ahead of me and it hit me through the windshield. Who was my dad to think that after all he had done that he could become a preacher? He taught on love, but he didn't know one thing about giving it. He spoke on parenting from the pupil, but Ian had a mess of a life and I was a depressed, suicidal clutter. He got to sit in his church on the land that Grandpa John gave him and pretend that he was better than the rest of the family. He claimed to be fixed, while I remained broken. I thought about my mom and how selfish she was. She sat in her apartment and drank every day and had no care about who I was becoming. She let Ian and I grow up without a mother. Our relationship balanced on the basis of whether or not I would do things for her. Lori... I didn't know why she couldn't wait on me. What could we have been if i had gotten one more chance love between a man and a woman can go cold when not cared for but can't those same complexities become a beautiful piece of art when that love is brought to life again i was a lonely man that no longer had anyone to love as my heart was only capable of pumping blood focus i said and i breathed in and out dr healer called them racing thoughts he taught me that when i lost control of my mind i was to focus on something positive to bring it back under my control My thoughts worked independently from my mind, and it drove me in circles, and they wore me down. His recommendation was, instead of complaining myself about how the people in my life didn't live up to my expectations, that I was to be thankful instead. I thought of the one person that I was thankful for. Thank you for Grandpa John, I said. I drove on through the desolate state of Kansas. It is a land good for growing feed crops, and dreams are to be given up on, and I passed miles of both. I had driven all night. As I drove through Newton, the sun was beginning to come up. The light began to shine through the mirrors of the truck, and I watched the sunrise in the reflection. It's when I'm tired that I can finally become happy. It's a time when I can take a break and detach from myself because of the sheer mental exhaustion. My mind began to still, like the river in the morning, as I had finally worn it out. My battle of self ceased as I drove forward. Truckers to drive at night know that the most dangerous time to be on the road is just as the sun begins to rise. It's when the body becomes in a state of confusion. It begins to fight against itself and is unable to determine to be awake or asleep. It's called the time of the second wind and it can make or break a driver. It can wreck or drive a life. Just in the Hutchinson, Kansas, I saw her in the road about a mile ahead. I had been seeing Lori for some time. She was standing by my bed as I woke up in the morning. I saw her at dusk walking barefoot along the pond behind my trailer. I saw her waiting on me in my pickup as I walked out of my home. But this was more lifelike, more fluid, more real. I could see her long hair blowing in the wind of the plains. her eyes illuminated by the silhouette that was outlined by the rising sun. A cloud of dust came from the gravel alongside the road as I stopped the truck. Once it settled, I saw the person standing there, and I needed to get my eyes checked. It was a man about my height with long, shoulder-length hair and a dark and patchy beard. His eyes were a bright blue and shone like two suns. I rolled the passenger side window down. Where are you heading? I asked, looking down at the worn and weathered man that had been on the road for a long time. Carson City, he said. Headed that way? I'm going through there, I said. You're welcome to ride along. He got in the truck and put his feet atop an old army bag with a sold-on patch of the Mexican flag. Driving over the road and seeing most of the country, I've learned that our nation is constantly changing. The people in America are different from sea to sea. People in the south tend to be heavier. The west and its sun darkens the color of its people. Northern people are hardy and of good natured temperament. People of the east talk quickly and live even faster. America's beauty lies in our differences. Diversity is part of our nature. My name's John, I said, glancing over to my new passenger and winding up the gears of the truck to get back to highway speed. Jesus, he responded. I shook out a cigarette out of the pack and placed one in my mouth. I held the pack over to him in an offer and he took one. Thanks, Jesus responded. I nodded and said, I've always admired how your culture uses that name for their children and have always wondered why we don't do it here. Well, he said, there's a difference in my name and the Savior's. The man on the cross in my country is called Jesus Christo. The way that he said that actually made me uncomfortable. I shifted in my seat as I thought it over. I hadn't had Jesus on my mind in a while. In my head I knew he was the savior, but I never said it out loud or even expressed a thought to myself. What exactly did he save me from? I heard people in my dad's church life claim to be saved or born again, but I never understood it. Are you okay? Jesus asked. You look a little, oh, what is it, the word in English? Unsettled. I looked on down the highway and let the cigarette fly from my hand out the window of the truck. I tried to focus on my next thought per the advice of Dr. Healer. I wanted to seem calm, to Jesus, but inside I felt like a prisoner. If only I knew the jailer was myself. It's what you said about your name. The difference between Jesus and Jesus Cristo, I said. The way you said, the Savior. It was like you know him as a friend. Jesus reached down to the bag at his feet and unzipped a side pocket, pulling out a small book. This, he said, as he showed me a worn, maroon, soft softcover Bible, was my grandfather's Bible. He gave it to my father. And he gave it to me. They taught me that you can have no greater friend than Jesus. I needed a friend like the man sitting in the seat next to me. That's a good thing you got a friend. They're hard to come by these days. Do you have many friends? He asked. I used to, I said. But after school, as I've grown older, I lost touch. It's never too late to reconnect, Jesus said. His implication wasn't preachy. He said it like he actually cared about me. Compare that to the judgment of my dad's religion. He'd nag me about getting back in the church. It was only a duty to him, an item to be checked off a to-do list. You know, Johnny, Jesus said, they say that you are an average of the five people that you spend the most time with. I become such a loner over the last few years and didn't spend any real quality time with anyone. I spent a lot of time reading this Bible, he said, as he placed it back into his bag. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and sometimes Paul, <laughs> and he laughed a joyous chuckle. That's my five. Oh, and Jesus Cristo himself. So you're saying that reading a book means that you are spending time with friends, I asked? In a sense, but the experience seems to be unique for everyone, Jesus said. If you hadn't had a chance to try it, the mystery is definitely worth the effort. We sat in silence for some time as I continued driving. Miles went by, and minutes rolled on. I lit another cigarette. As I exhaled the first drag, I asked Jesus, Would you like another one? Please, he responded. Smoking brings a certain camaraderie amongst its partakers. The activity allows two men that don't have any similarities to bond until the last ash falls. Outside an office, a janitor might have a smoke with the vice president, or at the front door of a restaurant, a hostess might light up with a tour. I had had a man once tell me that it took seven minutes to smoke the perfect cigarette. He explained the steps and the state of mind that one should be in, and had been adamant that if his theory was followed, then complete satisfaction would be had. I don't know about that, but I do know that if two people... Spend seven minutes together. They will begin to realize they are more alike than they are different. Jesus studied the cherry ember on the end of the white paper. He tapped the butt twice with his thumb and ashed out the window of the truck. What brings you out west, Johnny? The cargo, I responded. I hid behind my answer and tried to shift the conversation away from the real reason I was going to San Francisco. How about you? I'm headed to Carson City to find a man, he said. Who? The man that killed my father, Jesus said. I had heard that he's in Carson City, hiding from the cartel. I was careful in the way that I worded my questions after hearing that. I knew that a vengeful man is a dangerous one. But it was different with Jesus. Are you going there to kill him? Jesus laughed a wide grin. You would think, he said. And for a while that was my exact intention. But then I felt something different. I began to have an urging. Towards what? I asked. I can't fully understand it. I still don't have words for the experience that I had, he responded. I had walked with the burden of hate towards him for years. I spent all my money and my energy towards finding him. I wanted him to pay for what he had done, but I never could find him. Then one day, a thought became burned in my mind. I should give him mercy. I grew angry and my tone changed in hearing his response. I could feel my body clenching in defense. Dr. Healer had walked me through an exercise to overcome this and helped me to be able to have a conversation without changing it into an argument. But I couldn't stop myself. How could you give mercy to the man that killed your father? I've asked myself that same question, he responded.